This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical uh, Theory Channel. Today, I'm very honored to be speaking with a very special guest. I've got Professor Sir Stanley Wells with us to talk about a great book that he published with Cambridge University Press last year. The book is called What Was Shakespeare Really Like? Uh, Professor Stanley Wells, welcome to New New Books Network. Thank you very much. Uh, you are a world-renowned Shakespearean scholar, but for the benefit of the uninitiated, would you please briefly introduce yourself, tell us about your expertise, and more importantly, how you fell in love with Shakespeare? Yeah, I've been interested in Shakespeare since I was a schoolboy. I was introduced to him by a very inspiring English teacher in a grammar school in Hull during the 1940s. I'm 93 years old, so I've got a lot, a lot of years behind me. Uh, I, over my long career, I have worked very closely with Shakespeare, first teaching school children. I was a school teacher for six years. Then I joined the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon. The Institute is part of the University of Birmingham, a sort of graduate department exclusively devoted to Shakespeare. Uh, I worked my way up there, uh, eventually becoming director of the Shakespeare Institute, And during this period, I lectured widely on Shakespeare in England, in Europe, and further afield occasionally, too. Uh, I wrote uh, a review about Shakespeare. I edited. I'm the general editor of the Penguin edition of Shakespeare Mm -hmm. and also of the Oxford edition of Shakespeare. Uh, And I have written uh, many books about Shakespeare over the years, the most recent one being the one we're talking about now, uh, what was Shakespeare really like? A challenging question. It indeed is a challenging question. I will definitely ask you about that. the title of the book as well. But um, so, so let's talk about the, the the story of this book. What made you decide to write the book about Shakespeare's, I may say, personality? So uh, how did you write, write it? Well, I, I, I wanted to write it because... Uh, 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 obviously getting towards the end of my career, I wanted to do a sort of summing up of my relations with with Shakespeare. I wrote it initially as lectures. I was invited to give four lectures, uh, originally to have been given in person at the Shakespeare Centre, which is the headquarters of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust here in Stratford-upon-Avon. I was invited to give those for my 90th birthday. However, circumstances has changed. Uh, the centre had to close because of the pandemic. So, in fact, the lectures were given in somewhat shortened form from my home here, in sort of where we are now. Uh, they were abbreviated and 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 uh, filmed uh, 
and transmitted was a result. Of course, they were seen by far more people than if they'd been given in person. But then after that, I uh, revised the lectures, thought afresh about them, and uh, Cambridge University Press agreed to publish them. So they were published under the title that you, you know here, What Was Shakespeare Really Like? A challenging question, of course. Uh, let's talk about the first chapter. The first chapter is called What Manner of Man Was He? And it's a very literary Titus, I'm guessing it's a line from Shakespeare's play. Uh, play. How, how did you set about, you know, dissecting Shakespeare's personality from his works? Yeah, well, there are various, uh, uh, not only from his works, I may say, but also from his life records. Yeah. Various ways you can approach the question. Uh, you can think about his, uh, the, the way his family life. You can think about his professionalism. You can think about the fact, the interesting fact, that he's the only major, only dramatist of his time who didn't live permanently in London. He lived between, he, he moved between Stratford and London, which suggests a fairly strong degree of commitment to family as well as to his profession. Uh, I, I thought also about how he wrote, how he wrote the plays. We probably come on to that later. I thought about his education in Stratford here. Uh, you can, uh, the, Stratford had a, a grammar school, which is still here, of course, the King's mm. School, as it was called in his time, the King's New School. And uh, it offered a, a, a very, a, what must have been a very good education, a classics-based education, as all uh, education was in Shakespeare's time. Only for boys, it's only the boys who got a, a school schooling, and he would be educated in Stratford with a particular emphasis on Latin, uh, on Latin writers, including Ovid, who became a favourite writer, who, whose works lie behind many of Shakespeare's works, including, for example, the early long poems, Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece, not often read nowadays, perhaps, but but great great works in their own kind. Uh, and he, there are also two sonnets, two of the sonnets, which in fact are translations. The last two printed sonnets are translations uh, from, uh, from the Greek uh, through Latin, uh, so clearly Shakespeare was uh, well-educated for his time, and this education can be seen behind the, all the plays as well. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and you also said that you, you have also tried to get more information about his personality but from yeah. his personal life. Do we know what his contemporaries or what other people said about him, Shakespeare as a person? Yeah, then we, have, we have some evidence about uh, from his contemporaries. It's all nice. They all seem to have liked him. <laughs> there are several, there are three sonnets, for example, uh, poems which refer to him more than once as being sweet. The adjective sweet is used of him, sweet Master Shakespeare, which suggests that he had uh, a pleasing personality in, in public and, and presumably in private too. There are a number of references in sonnets, dedicatory sonnets, and also in some plays known as the Parnassus plays, in one of which a student says, oh, sweet Master Shakespeare, I get his picture in my study at the court. Uh, the, 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 in other words, that Shakespeare was a sort of pin-up boy. He was a celebrity. He became, of course, uh, over the years, became a celebrity in his own time. 
um, I, I've read most of Shakespeare's plays, and I must confess that before reading your book, I never thought about. I always read the pro the, the the play. I never thought about how Shakespeare went about writing a play. And you have a chapter on that. So your second chapter is about. Uh, is called how did he write a play? So given that we have very little textual evidence or manuscript evidence of Shakespeare, it's true. Yeah. How do you go about to uh, to answer this question? So how did he write a play? Well, you, you you look at the play and you think where it came from. And it, it came, it, they, most of his plays have literary sources. They may be in fiction, as in, for example, uh, the plays based on on Italian comic, comic stories, like Much Ado About Nothing or uh, Twelfth Night, uh, or they, they may be based on, uh, on, on historical writings both English history and, of course, a, a substantial part of Shakespeare's work is plays about his own country, especially in his early career. He wrote the plays about Henry VI, followed by Henry V and Henry, uh, Henry IV and Henry V. Uh, and he also uh, wrote historical works based on Roman history, uh, like Titus Andronicus, very early, not very historical play, luckily. Uh, it's a horrible story of torture and rape. Uh, and then later, the more, more moderate plays about Roman history, Julius Caesar, uh, Coriolanus, Antony and Cleopatra. So... We, we, in many cases, you can say that Shakespeare's plays came from his, from his reading in various ways. So I'm, I'm really interested to know more about it. So I, can I ask you, please, maybe to read a part of your book uh, from chapter, uh, from the second chapter, which is about how he wrote a play? Yes. The ground plans for some of Shakespeare's plays are more uh, systematically worked out than others. For example, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, which was first printed, I believe, from Shakespeare's original manuscript, seems to be made up as it goes along, as if at times we can catch him in the act of working out his plot. The most obvious example is the fact that in two stage directions, a character the mother of the heroine, who is rather confusingly called Hero, a hero's mother appears in the stage directions, but she doesn't say anything. As if Shakespeare thought he would include her, but then, for some reason, possibly because he, he realised he didn't have enough boy actors, because, of course, all the women's parts were played by, by boys, young men, uh, he, he, he wrote her out of the play. Uh, and there are other instances of that, too. Uh, some plays include substantial episodes which are not essential to the plot, but which offer entertaining interludes. Uh, early on, for example, in what I believe to be his first play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Lance's scenes with his dog, who's called Crab, are an example. Sometimes he gives us scenes which reflect on what has been happening, meditative scenes, like the scene in Richard II, where the gardeners think about what's happened to the king and, and to the kingdom. So uh, we, can some, we, we can see Shakespeare uh, creating such scenes on the dialogue between the mad uh, Gloucester, the Earl of Gloucester and King Lear, 
uh, is another scene which is inessential to the plot, but essential to our sense of the characterization and to the to the drama and to the sense of what she, uh, the, uh, the meanings that Shakespeare derived from the stories that he was using. Uh, some plays are very elaborately and neatly plotted. I think of the Comedy of Errors or Romeo and Juliet or The Tempest Lid, his, his last complete play, uh, as if, like an architect designing a great cathedral, as if Shakespeare created his overall design before going back to fill in the details. And there's no way in which the 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 intricacies of the virtuosically designed final scenes of Cymbalin, again, one of his late plays, scenes which have uh, one... Uh, revelation following rapidly upon another, there's no way in which you can improvise those on the spot of the moment, on, on the spur of the moment. The composition of those plays required the same kind of mental agility, the same kind of inter intellectual effort as a contrapuntal masterpiece by Bach. Very intellectually demanding writing is, is, is giving us in these plays. Thank you. That was that was a that was a great explanation of how he uh, went about to craft a play, and uh, you have a whole chapter about Shakespeare's sonnets. Yes, and um, uh, we know we know things from his biography based on his plays, but I'm also interested to know what we can get from Shakespeare based on his sonnets and why you devoted a whole chapter to his sonnets. Well, I devoted a whole chapter to them because they are the only area of his work virtually, in which he's speaking in his own person. He's not not putting him, his, not imagining himself into imaginary or historical characters as he is in the plays. The sonnets are, are personal poems. Some of them are more personal than others. Uh, the, the, some of them are deeply uh, meditative uh, uh, reflections are, are on his own life and on life itself. One of them, only one of them, is a religious poem. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, it begins. Uh, but the rest of them vary greatly in tone. Some of them are quite light-hearted, but some of them are profoundly personal meditations on his own love life, his sexual life, his sexuality. And they are, I think, extremely revealing. I had worked, before publishing this book, I'd worked with Paul Emerson, who's kindly helping me today. Uh, we wrote together a book called All the Sonnets of Shakespeare and also a book called Shakespeare's Sonnets, in which he thought very seriously about how Shakespeare wrote sonnets and what they tell us about his life. And I think they tell us a great deal about his interior life, about his uh, emotional and sexual life. Mm. Uh, can you please read a part of your book from this chapter about Shakespeare's sonnets or maybe a part of your sonnets? I'll leave it up to you what uh, what part of the chapter you'd like to read. Okay, yeah. Well, th thinking about the basic questions about the sonnets, uh, the, the sonnets published in 1609, uh, the, as I say, the 154 of them, uh, we 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 don't know who arranged these poems uh, in the order in which they're printed. They're clearly written at a variety of dates, 
Some of them are individually written. Some of them were written in pairs or little clusters of poems. Uh, we don't know who arranged them into the order in which they appeared in print. It must have been somebody who knew all of them intimately uh, and who had thought hard about their relationship to one another. And the obvious candidate for, for doing this is Shakespeare himself. The other question is, if some or, or all of these poems are concerned with real people, who are these people? Well, we'd like to have answers to these questions, if only because they would help us to know, to answer the question in the title of my book, to know what Shakespeare was really like. If, for example, he cold-bloodedly handed over for publication for ready money, perhaps, love poems addressed to and concerned with people who were still alive at the time of publication, uh, people who would have known that he was putting their intimate relationships into print, uh, even if they couldn't be easily identified. This would suggest that he didn't care much for the feelings of the people he would have been writing about. If the printed text of the sonnets derives directly or possibly by way of a scribal transcript uh, from Shakespeare's own manuscript, that it would seem, wouldn't it, that he had he himself had preserved manuscript versions of all 154 sonnets. Uh, that that he, a bit like a, a schoolboy putting collecting stamps, that he had a a notebook. Uh, in, into which he transcribed all these poems, uh, a notebook uh, which eventually, possibly even against his will, uh, was published. Mm. We don't know. We simply don't know how the poems got into print. The best we could do is to examine the evidence and to form our own conclusions uh, from, what it from what it tells us. My conclusion, for what it's worth, is that the publisher, Thomas Thorpe, got hold, possibly by underhand means, of a manuscript into which all the poems had been written out, possibly, probably indeed, by Shakespeare himself, certainly in an order that Shakespeare approved and which the publisher followed. I think then that the publisher's dedication to the sonnets, ded they're dedicated to, to Master W.H., and there's been an awful lot written about who Master W.H. might have, might have been, uh, this publication may be deliberately cryptic, trying to conceal rather than to inform readers. And I think that Shakespeare possibly disapproved of the publication, but kept quiet about it so as not to draw attention to it. Mm. It's such an intimate collection of poems. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. Uh I'm 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 interested also to know about the fourth chapter of the book, and the title of the chapter is "What Made Him Laugh." Yes. So when it comes to Shakespeare, again, a lot of us might associate Shakespeare with Hamlet, Macbeth, uh, King yeah. Lear. So yeah. maybe humor, tragedy is more salient feature rather than humor. But I'm interested to know how would you characterize Shakespeare's sense of humor? Yes, well, you, of course, we, we don't have any really direct evidence uh, about it except from, from his writings. Uh, I think uh, you, it, it was a very uh, humane sense of humour that he demonstrates in his 
in his uh, poems as well as in his plays. The, the uh, Venus Adonis is a very is, is a humorously witty poem. Uh, wit is part of it, intelligence and in, 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 an intellectual response uh, to comedy, often after ironical, seeing the funny side of things which my, other people might have taken seriously. I think he was amused by the foibles of human character. And we value this a great deal in characters like, uh, well, like the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, for example, with her earthy, uh, earthy approach to, to sex and, and to love. Um, similarly, Mistress Quickly in the Henry IV plays. We value his sense of humour in his greatest comic creation, as most people would, would say, Sir John Falstaff, uh, so, so, so great that so Shakespeare himself seems to have been so fond of him that he wrote, wrote him into several plays, both the Henry the fourth place, parts one and two, uh, a bit in Henry V, and also uh, very much, of course, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, the comedy which tradition says was written for performance uh, at the royal court. Uh, so uh, the Shakespeare's sense of humour is, is, is apparent through, throughout his plays, is responsible for their popularity, and it's often a very profound sense of humour. It, it, it isn't. It isn't simply farcical or uh, is lightly comic. Sometimes it's profoundly humane and and uh, giving us a full sense of rounded characters. Like well, Falstaff is the obvious example, but Satuwe Belch is another. Sometimes it's satirical humour, sending people up, like Malvolio in in Twelfth Night, for example. Uh, the, the, he can be quite harsh about 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 the characters of his plays. Can you please read a part of your chapter about uh, uh, about his sense of humor, about uh, Shakespeare's sense of humor? Yeah, okay. I, I say in the book, I say Shakespeare was skillful in arousing laughter by devising situations of contrived discomfiture, embarrassment, in other words. For example, there's a brilliant episode in Love's Labour's Lost, it's Act 4, Scene 1, in which Lord Beroon, the central main lover in the play, tricks his three friends, the King, Lord Dumaine and Lord Longerville, he tricks them uh, into revealing that they, like him, have fallen in love, although they've all forsworn uh, love or declared that they will uh, have nothing to do with women for several years. And uh, the, 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 he tricks them into reading aloud the poems that they've addressed to the women they're in love with, thus revealing their apostasy. It's a very brilliantly funny scene. I remember once uh, in the theatre watching a, a little girl who was sitting in, in the front row uh, getting more and more involved uh, and abused by the situation in front of her, so much so that he had to stuff her handkerchief into her mouth uh, to stop us uh, from laughing aloud. Uh, as she anticipated the, the successful outcome of Varun's tricks. And there are other examples like, uh, uh, like in later plays, some of the very emotionally revealing ones, like uh, when Beatrice, for example, in Much Ado About Nothing, is uh, made to realise 
that uh, that Benedict is in love with her and she is in hiding and she comes out of hiding and speaks. Interesting, she speaks a poem which is a foreshortened sonnet. What fire is my ear in mine ears? She says, and it's a scene that reveals her her emotions uh, discovering that somebody that she rather fancies herself is actually in love with her too. Uh, sometimes Shakespeare uh, raise, raises laughter by creating situations in which a character makes a fool of himself or is comically embarrassed as a result sometimes of accident, other times of having a trick played upon him. Uh, I think, uh, uh, for example, in, in Twelfth Night, I think of Malvolio being deluded into supposing that his employer, the Countess Olivia, is in love with him. It's like two, scene five. Or more seriously, in one of the more, one of the darker comedies, All's Well That Ends Well, I think of the episode when the the cowardly paroles, the word means, the word... The word pearls, the name, means words, of course, indicating that he is a wordy, self-deluded character. And he is tricked into uh, uh, into revealing his cowardice. Uh, it's characteristic of Shakespeare's ability to let us see situations in the round, as it were, from multiple points of view, that in Twelfth Night Malvolio who has been tricked and fooled, is allowed his comeback. At the end of the play, he says, I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you. And, and similarly, uh, in All's World, Paroles is a, uh, rapidly recovers his, uh, his uh, composure uh, when he says, Captain, I'll be no more, but I will eat and drink and sleep as soft as Captain can. Simply the thing I am can make me live. It, it, it's, 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 it's very pointed, isn't it? Very, the simplicity of the statement uh, in which he declares his self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, listening to you, I feel like tempted to pick up Shakespeare's books and read some of uh, his plays again. <laughs> well, that's fine. Why not? But yeah, and I hope, and I hope that listeners mm -hmm. Because the listeners will listen, I'm sure. Yeah. It is, of course, fine to read Shakespeare, but reading Shakespeare is not a terribly easy thing to do sometimes. Uh, and that's why, for example, when Shakespeare is taught in schools, I think it's a good thing if, if the pupils are encouraged to act out the plays themselves rather than simply read them, because the, the, the words are there to be to be embodied, to be the character to be personified in, in, in through real through the medium of the real people who are performing them. It's that that create that makes the plays three dimensional. That gives us a sense of involvement with the action and with the people who are involved themselves in the action. Yeah, yeah, that's really good advice. Um, and. So the book has four chapters, but you also have an epilogue, which is sort of oh, a yeah. memoir chapter about you and over eight decades of reading and teaching Shakespeare. So yeah. can you tell, tell us some of the highlights of your career with Shakespeare? What are the highlights for you? Well, I've had a lot of experiences that I owe to Shakespeare. One that I remember particularly 
uh, was in uh, uh, in 1989 when the British Council invited me to do a lecture tour in Czechoslovakia, as it then was now the Czech Republic. Uh, and my host there was the senior Shakespeare scholar, a man called Zdenek Strybny, who for years had been forbidden to teach for political reasons. He had liberal views and he had to do uh, menial work uh, rather, rather than, than uh, teach students in a way that might have allowed him to say things that appeared subversive to the government. Uh, I arrived in Czechoslovakia on the 19th of November, uh, and as I was being shown around the castle uh, area in, in, the, in the city, Shribny told me that there had been what he called a spot of bother. The police had beaten up some students, one of whom was rumoured, falsely as it turned out, to have died as a result. On the next day, I was lecturing to the Czech Academy, and uh, at the end of the lecture, uh, we, we I went out, We, my audience and I went out onto the balcony of the academy and watched as a great stream of students streamed past on the way on their way from the marketplace to the uh, to the presidential palace to register their their protest that to, uh, against the, the the oppressive government on the other side of the street the actors from the national theater which faces the academy were waving too and they had rather incited the rebellion it was very a very moving experience um as the day passed, more and more processions of workers joined in the protests. Uh, I, I still have a badge wearing the, the showing the, with an image of the playwright, the Czech playwright Václav Havel, who was uh, one of the incited of the, of the rebellion. And I attended an enormous meeting in Wenceslas Square. About six hundred thousand people were there uh, when the rebellion was was at its height. Eventually, the British Council got rather worried for my safety, and I was flown out out uh, before I was due to uh, originally to have to have left. So that was a very moving experience as a result of Shakespeare. I can imagine that. Yeah, it, it it's a fascinating story. Right. Uh, uh, before we come to the end of this uh, interview, there are lots of other great things you talk about, your personal experience with Shakespeare you talk about in this chapter. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, end the interview? Well, of course, uh, although my career has centered on being a professor, on teaching, I've also... Uh, broadened the spectrum as it were in a number of ways i have been much involved in, in stratford with the shakespeare birthplace trust uh of which i was uh, a trustee then chairman i'm now honorary president the trust is the organization that looks after the shakespeare houses and has an important uh, educational function an educational department for seven years uh, i i left academe and worked for oxford university press uh, as uh, i founded a shakespeare department there with the specific aim of producing a new com 
edition of the complete works of Shakespeare, a complete Oxford Shakespeare. The, 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 the Oxford Shakespeare that was then in print dated back right to the end of the, the previous century, and Oxford realized they were out, is out of date. Uh, and instead of employing a, 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 a scholar to do it as part of his university job, which is the usual system, they had the vision to realize that it was such a, a big job that it, that it would require somebody working full time on it. So I moved house to Oxford, lived in Oxford, and founded the Shakespeare department there, which uh, eventually resulted in the production, not only of the Oxford edition of the complete works, uh, the single volume edition, but also of a multi-volume edition, uh, every play and, and the poems in separate volumes, which has also been published as the world's classics edition. So that was an important uh, uh, interlude, as it were, or, or a change of direction for a while in my career. But then I, I was able to return back to the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford as director. And even after I, re I retired, I've kept on uh, working on Shakespeare, writing about Shakespeare, lecturing, traveling. Uh, I still, for example, regularly go with, with Paul to Verona. Uh, every year there is a Shakespeare festival there and we are able there to talk on the play that they're centering on and to take part in activities. So Shakespeare has been my life. It, it, it's a little, hardly an exaggeration to say that. Uh, and I've been lucky to, uh, to have such a rewarding life as a result of my interaction with Shakespeare as editor, as theatre-goer. Of course, I've seen a great many productions of Shakespeare, I've seen all the productions of, the Royal, of Shakespeare in the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, since I arrived in Stratford in, in, in the 60s. I've seen Shakespeare on film, I've seen Shakespeare in different languages, uh, I've seen silent Shakespeare, uh, I, I've read Shakespeare, I've lived Shakespeare, in fact. So that's been an immensely rewarding experience and all for which I'm extremely grateful. And I guess I can easily tell that passion and love of Shakespeare just comes from your voice. And as I said, listening to you, I'm tempted to read some of his plays. And I must say that uh, you have made enormous contributions to Shakespeare's scholarship. Some of the books you mentioned, uh, uh, the Oxford Classic series, I have in my library. And oh, me good. as a student, I've greatly benefited from your scholarship on Shakespeare. You've made it accessible to a lot of people. Uh, and, and yeah, we are truly, the lovers of Shakespeare are indebted to you for your great works. And I'm, I was truly honored to be able to speak with you about this book. And I must add that this is a fascinating book, very accessible, easy to read, and it gives readers a lot of insights about Shakespeare. And the great thing about the book is that it's not quite like other Cambridge books. It's very easy to read and quite short. Uh, four chapters about Shakespeare's yeah. works and his personality and one chapter about your contributions to the to Shakespeare's scholarship and your passion for Shakespeare. Professor Sir Stanley Wells, thank you very, very much for your time uh, and speaking with us on New Books Network about your book. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to meet you and to talk about it. Thank you very much.